Welcome to the Film for Fans podcast, your home for movie news, reviews, and movie fan views. This is the podcast from movie fans for movie fans. I am your host, Ryan Dunleavy, joined by the Minnesota United Club. Correct. Rob Dunham. The Those loons. flying loons. Those loons will get you. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. So welcome once again we have a great show in store we're going to talk about movies big movies coming out we're going to give you a little bit of preview of some movies in may we are going to talk about an interesting little tidbit about the matrix Uh, we will discuss harry potter and of course our watch list rob i think it's time to get started and I think we need to fulfill some promises from our podcast last week. Yeah, so we did say that if you reached out to us and let us know about the movie that you wish you had not seen, we would let the people know that your voice was heard. Um, I don't know if Ryan has checked the YouTube to see if there's any comments on there. I didn't. So if there <laughs> is. <laughs> then... I usually get notifications for it. It's possible okay. I missed it. Okay, I did get uh, my friend Mike reached out to me and told me that the movie he wished he had not seen is a movie called Buried, starring Ryan Reynolds, mm. in which Ryan Reynolds is buried alive for the entirety of the movie. Apparently, I've not seen this. Have you seen it? I I've seen clips of it, uh, pieces of it. I've never seen the whole thing because that's not one of my favorites. Mike Mike's direct quote was, "When the movie was over, I wished I could have thrown my TV out of the window." <laughs> Well, yeah. And he also said that everyone who's listening to this podcast or watching it should be forced to watch this movie so they can suffer as he had to suffer. That's also a direct quote. I like it. (laughs) I like it. So thanks for the feedback, Mike. And I'm sorry you had to go through that experience. Ryan Reynolds seems like a pretty chill, funny guy most of the time. So for him to be involved in a movie that you wish you could unsee is pretty damning evidence that it's not a very good movie. Yeah. <laughs> There's also this thing called the Green Lantern that we don't like to talk about very often. <laughs> Actually, we covered that on the podcast. When Ryan Reynolds <laughs> live tweeted his very first <laughs> viewing of it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, excellent. Well, good on you, Mike, and we're all sorry about that. So when we have our discussion questions later, if there's something that you uh, feel like you want to interact or give your opinion, please do, and we will mention it because we are men of our word if nothing else absolutely absolutely lies do not become us ryan (laughs) oh man okay well let's get started i thought since may is starting to become the the month that more movies are starting to come out bigger movies are starting to come out that we would uh dive a little bit into some movies that will be out in the next couple weeks. Uh, in fact, one of we're going to talk about three movies. One of them is out now. One of them comes out this Friday, which you'll listen to this podcast at least on Friday. So it will be out by the time you listen to it. And one that's coming out at the end of the month. So let's, uh, let's start with the one that's coming out Friday the 7th. And this is one I'm, I'm personally very ecstatic about. Uh, the Wrath of Man, starring Jason Statham, directed by Guy Ritchie. That's right. We have a new Guy Ritchie film in theaters this coming Friday. 
So this is kind of like a reunion because Jason Statham and Guy Ritchie kind of kind of grew up in the movie industry together. They both did their first two films together. Uh, Jason Statham's first acting role was in Guy Ritchie's first movie in Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels, which we talked about in the podcast a little bit a few weeks ago. And they made several other films together, but it's been since 2005 since they've worked together. And I have often uh, associated these two in my head, but now they are back. And they're back for a revenge action flick, which personally, I'm totally here for. So, Rob, what is your excitement level about Wrath of Man? Well, anytime Jason Statham gets going on uh, his action, you know, I know that's not how you pronounce his name. I just do it every time because it's hilarious. Uh, Jason Statham is like Action Man. So uh, I'm excited to see this. More excited that Guy Ritchie's involved because I think I mentioned this earlier on the podcast that I think he might be the best ensemble director when it comes to movies, the ability to craft different people's characters and personalities together to make a great movie that flows where every character involved has a purpose and none of them are just there to say a couple lines and disappear They're, they all have a meaning and he's just fantastic at that and writing in general so i'm excited to see what he does here because you know there might be a little less writing because jason statham might be punching things but other than that it'll be good yeah, I found it interesting that Jason Statham said that this at the beginning will not feel like a Guy Ritchie movie, which I find fascinating because when we talked about uh, a while ago, we talked about directors with the most unique styles. I listed Guy Ritchie on, on the list of most unique styles. You know you when you're in a Guy Ritchie movie. So the fact that at some points this may not feel like a Guy Ritchie movie is intriguing to me. One, I whether, wonder whether that's true or not, whether it will feel something different. And two, it would be fascinating if it does, because I would love to see how uh, the qualities of Guy Ritchie play out in a way that's unique to him. So I got my fingers crossed for a stop animation intro. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this this I'm very excited about this. I intend on trying to go see it uh, at some point this week and I look forward to it. Jason Statham, of course, never fails to deliver the action. And Most of his movies, uh, several of his movies are predicated on nothing except mindless action. So yeah. he's got that down to a science. But I think that his acting credentials or chops have also been expanding a little bit recently. I think that his, the exploration of his character in the Fast and the Furious movies, whether or not that's like an incredible character or not, is still showing that he can act a little bit. He has some humor and he can be a little serious at times when he needs to be. Mm -hmm. So it'll certainly be telling to see what his performance is in a movie like this, because Guy Ritchie is definitely going to do more with him than just have him run around and punch things. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing Guy Ritchie, you're going to get, you're going to get uh, a level of depth that you wouldn't necessarily get in other movies. 
Uh, it's also interesting to note that he was mentioning that they're working on another project together right now, another film that's going to come out, which uh, more of that, please. Yes. Mm. Uh, in fact, he said they were working so much together, they might be getting sick of each other. So that's interesting. Um, I did not realize that Jason Statham was 53. That doesn't seem right. I, I don't know what age I thought he was, but 53 seemed like a jarring number. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's clearly not in his 20s or 30s. He's clearly not in like his 60s. So that doesn't leave a whole lot of leeway. And I, no. I wouldn't have guessed he was in his 40s either, but it does sound weird to say 53. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think he just, he has that look where he just, he keeps himself in such good shape that you just, you, any, any, most of his movies, he's bald. So this movie, it looks like he's actually going to have hair, which will be interesting. <laughs> well, that just sounds like heresy. So I don't know about that. <laughs> Gosh. My opinion of excitement for this movie might have changed drastically <laughs> and immediately. <laughs> <laughs> We do the review and Rob docks him for his hair. Yes. Uh, zero out of 10 on the hair styling category. Yeah. I wonder if there's enough meat there to do a discussion topic. Movies that you dislike the hair of one of the main <laughs> candidates. I think it has to begin and end with Tom Hanks in uh, um, oh, uh, the Da Vinci Code. I think it has to begin <laughs> with Tom Hanks in the Da Vinci Code on the hair angle. Yeah, I said better days. Yeah, I think they even when they did one of those like uh, make make fun of it style movies, like the scary movie style, they did they did one that you know they're writing on the wall. Oh, lame, so lame, the hair of Tom. <laughs> so yeah, good stuff. Uh huh. It's All right, well, we are uh, we're off the rails a little bit. Let's move on to our next one. What else is new? <laughs> I know it is what it is. So the next one, we're going to go to A Quiet Place 2. Now, we've talked a little bit about A Quiet Place 2 a number of times. Yes. But the final trailer came out this week. The final trailer came out, and my excitement level continues to grow with this. You get to see, finally, we get to see this movie. This is one of the pandemic-delayed movies, and this is one of the big ones that everyone was waiting to see. And it's finally coming out. We are finally going to get to see it. It comes out March 28th. May 28th. Um, yeah, March May. 28th already happened. Yeah, that did. Yeah. <laughs> I know we'd like time travel, but that's, you know, yeah, no, we're not doing that. Yeah, May 28th. <laughs> May 28th. Uh, and it's going to be, as we talked about previously, it's going to be a little bit of a prequel, a little bit of a sequel. And it looks fantastic. It looks really really scary it looks like there's going to be a ton of big moments i think what i'm looking forward to most about this particular movie is how basically picking up on what john krasinski did so well with the first one which was that juxtaposition of silence with sheer moments of action that just hits you right out of the bolt I think there's going to be a lot more of that type of play, especially when it comes to the general sound and vibe of the movie. You're, you're going to get stark contrast in sound, which I think have the capability of producing some real, real moments of anxiety. 
I really liked in this new trailer uh, that they had the scene where he's in the drugstore from the first movie and he walked right by the rocket that was a key part of the first movie. And if you have not seen it, I'm not going to spoil why, but just even seeing that was jarring and seeing people in that store talking like normal, asking what's happening on the TV as this invasion starts and they're like oh i think it's uh, like a bomb and i can't wait to see how much of the unraveling they show how quick it happens where it happens um how they survive because i think that's one of the biggest questions unanswered questions you have watching the first movie is how did this family actually survive like how did they find their way to this farm how do they how are they able to protect themselves and not be picked off by these things in time, how are they able to fortify themselves? And then the other question is, how did they survive at the end of the first movie? Because it, by all accounts, it looked like there was a horde of these things headed their way with one gun to defend themselves. <laughs> so I think a lot for a lot of people, <clears throat> their thought was at the end of the first one, they didn't make it because it just looked like they were going to be overwhelmed. But they found a way to get out, apparently. and. There's a, also a very emotional scene in the trailer, this new trailer where they step off of the salt line that is like their guiding line, their way to stay safe. And they step off that and start their journey out to find other people, which is very impactful. And I'm very interested in seeing where they go with it. Yeah, with any sequence, the first movie usually focuses around a single character or group of characters. The scope of the movie tends to be narrow. Once you get to a second movie, they always want to expand the world. And you definitely see evidence of that in the second one. You're getting some of the backstory. You're getting a wider cast of characters. And it looks like they're even planning on doing a spinoff movie with some of the the uh, side characters from this movie so you're gonna get a bigger world frame so you can have a much better idea of exactly what's going on in the world from this movie which i think is is really interesting i think this is what's going to determine whether this is a universe that's sustainable or whether it's going to be short-lived so i think i think this movie has tremendous potential all right. And our third movie is one that's out right now. And I thought I'd highlight this uh, just because there are, it seems like a potentially interesting premise. And it has uh, a once again recently crowned Oscar winner and Anthony Hopkins in it. Uh, the movie is called The Virtuoso. And it is billed as a dangerous danger, deception, and murder descend upon a sleepy town when a professional assassin accepts a new assignment from his enigmatic, enig, enigmatic boss. Yes, I can. Easy for you to say. I know, right? Uh, it is directed by Nick Stagliano and stars Anson Mount, Abby Cornish, and Anthony Hopkins. Anson Mount sounds like he should be playing for an English soccer team. <laughs> that's certainly a uh, a premier league name right there. either that or like only exists in the 1840s i'm not sure which one that works yeah uh but abby cornish is good and of course anthony hopkins is a movie legend 
this movie is out now. David Morse is also in this. Perhaps you're familiar with David Morse, good actor. Uh, had, had a lot of uh, secondary roles in a number of movies, including Frequency, which we mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago. So this one is out now. I think, I think it's got potential. I think it's interesting. Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I don't know a whole lot about the movie, but I do know Anthony Hopkins is some very recent Oscar success. So I'm sure that he is uh, feeling it <laughs> at the moment. I mean, when is he not? He's Anthony Hopkins. Yes, he is Anthony Hopkins. Uh, but I might have to go check this out in the theater while it is still there. Yeah, yeah, it's got an interesting premise to it. And I think this type of movie lends itself well to theaters as long as the story is told well. If the story is told well and it's intriguing, I think there is a lot of potential in it. And at this point in his career, I don't know that Anthony Hopkins is just going to sign up for some blah movie. He's got better things to do. <laughs> All right. And so that wraps up our movie update on what's coming out in theaters. So make sure you go out in theaters and check out some good movies. There's some great stuff coming up and it's only going to get better from here, hopefully. But our, our next story is, uh, we haven't talked about this side of the movie industry much, but Amazon is actually running some deals on 4K Blu-rays or 4K Ultra HD discs. I still call them Blu-rays. I don't, you know, 4K discs. Uh, and include, including in that is all the, uh, all the Skywalker Star Wars series movies. They're actually at a really good price at $16.99 on Amazon. Uh, also, movies like Tenant and some other ones are available. So if you have not picked up 4K movies, go for it. A lot of them actually also are combination packs where you can get, you can get other versions of them as well, including digital. You'll want to make sure you have a 4K Blu-ray player because if you do not, you'll be very sad. Yes. <laughs> or to make sure, like the ones I'm looking at here also have, they have the 4K Ultra HD, they've got the Blu-ray and the digital code. So if you just have a Blu-ray player and eventually are thinking about upgrading to 4K, you can take advantage of this. I'm starting to do that myself is if it's, if the price is right to get one that's in 4K. And so that my upgrade. And I, I think Ryan and I can both agree on this. And I think we might've both had the same expectation when we, when, when the transition to 4K first happened, I know I was a little skeptical of like, is this really going to be that big of a deal? And watching a movie in 4K is a different experience than watching it on a Blu-ray. It is. It is. It is, it is worth paying a little extra. Yeah. For. And it's, it's almost jarring how much more realistic and natural things feel when you're watching the movie. Because it almost feels like you are watching the people right in front of you, as opposed to watching it through the filter of whatever lens is being used. It's hard, it's hard to necessarily describe, but that's how I would put it in layman's terms, that it feels very real. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And the movies are worth it. Now, and so it's always good. It's always good. They tend to be more expensive. So it's always good when you can find good deals on them. And so the Star Wars ones are on sale right now for Amazon. That led me to, that led me to a question, which is, I don't actually own the Blu-rays of Star Wars. 
hmm. or the 4K versions of Star Wars. I don't. I have actually not owned any of the Star Wars movies since I had them on VHS. Uh, for whatever reason, I have not gotten around to it. So that leads me to the question is, is what series do you want that you don't own? Like, is, is there, are there series, is there any kind of series out there that you don't own that you would love to have? Well, if you recall, I, uh, there was a special edition Star Wars Blu-ray set that came out uh, once once the first uh, six movies were concluded. Mm. Once the prequels were concluded, it was a like tan, like big book book kind of thing with all the movies in it. And there were like four discs of extra features, which were awesome. And I owned that, but I actually gave it to a friend because they'd never seen Star Wars. And I basically said, this is your Star Wars education, and I want you to keep it. And one of the reasons was I also own the movies digitally. So <laughs> I didn't necessarily need the discs around. The special features were cool, but I didn't need them. Um, so I've, I've had, I have all the movies on uh, my Voodoo account. And uh, I think just like Blu-ray quality. Um, when I was thinking about this question, there's not really a series that I would point to, I would say that I want to own all of Christopher Nolan's movies in 4K because I don't. And I might have to check this out because they've been, I would say they've been prohibitively expensive <laughs> a lot of the time slash not able to be found on sale. So um, maybe I can pick off a couple of them here because a movie, uh, a movie that stands out for me uh, well, a couple of his that would stand out for me in that way are Inception, uh, Dunkirk, and Interstellar. I think all those movies in 4K would be quite an experience. And I know that he filmed them with that in mind. So yeah. Yeah. it would be nice to be able to see that vision in my own house whenever I want. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, one of the ones that sticks out is The Hobbit Extended Edition. Now, the Hobbit movies are not as good as the Lord of the Rings. They're just, they're just not. Um, they, you know, as, as uh, Bilbo may say, butter stretched over too much bread. <laughs> so, that's certainly what plagued the Hobbit series. However, I, I like them enough that I want to own them and I want to own the extended editions, but I have not found them at a price that I've been willing to pay for them. Uh, the just the prices seem prohibitive every time I've gone to look for it. So I would really love to own the Hobbit extended edition series. I have the Lord of the Rings extended editions on Blu-ray. I do not have the Hobbit, and I would love to have the Hobbit for sure. Writes down for a Christmas list. Actually, uh, I had it on my Christmas list a couple of times, but nobody was going to pop out for that. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not really in the group that gets. Uh, shared your Christmas list so yeah you know now now I have at least one thing <laughs> uh, the other thing I was thinking of is there was a um, and I can't remember if it was the original three movies or if it was just one so this may not actually qualify as a series uh, but it was the diehard Nakatomi Plaza edition <laughs> which actually came with the Nakatomi building it was that this edition was actually the Nakatomi building and the, the discs were housed inside the Nakatomi building, which I think is fantastic. So uh, Andy Samberg's character, Jake Peralta from Brooklyn Nine-Nine is very happy right now. 
because his entire life revolves around that movie. <laughs> and I think he would die if he owned something like that. Uh, a coworker and I were just talking about the upcoming edition of, uh, I think it's, it's going to de- be debuting ser- soon here, which is all the Marvel movies from Iron Man through the last Spider-Man mm-hmm. movie. And there's going to be a big giant set that has all of those movies in it. And I think it's something like $600. It's gonna yeah, be- I was going to say it's several hundred dollars. I'm yeah, sure. it's going to be like $600. And I thought <laughs> it would be cool to own, but at no point in my life do I ever just have $600 to drop on something does, like that. <laughs> does it come with like a, a real Infinity Gauntlet? <laughs> <laughs> it's the Infinity Gauntlet edition. Yes. <laughs> Comes with one made out of actual gold, I'm assuming. I'm hoping so. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So let's move on to our discussion topics. And this one is, again, one that's a little bit different than a discussion topic that that we've tackled before. So I don't know how this is going to go, but we'll see. Um, uh, This week, I stumbled across a YouTube video that was entitled, The Matrix and How Bad Remasters Happen. So Rob, when I when if I were to ask you what is one of the signature visual elements of the Matrix, what are some of the things that you would come up with? See, I cheated because I watched the yes. video, but I would have said the same thing before I watched the video, and that would be like the green tint aesthetic, everything. Absolutely, yes, the green tint aesthetic. Well, what if I were to tell you? that the original Matrix movie, the way it was released in theaters, was actually not that green. I would be shocked. Yes. <laughs> yes. So this video, this video starts out with that premise of, did you know that the original Matrix was not actually that green? What's fascinating about this video then is that it goes on to detail uh, some really cool behind-the-scenes things of how the actual... Uh, digital movies and how the versions that you can buy and the versions you get at home and what sometimes ends up in on displayed on TV, how that actually happens. And it's really, really interesting. And what can happen and what can go wrong with these is pretty apparent. So to dive into it a little bit is the the process basically involves um, you have the original film that gets shot and that's the, the version on film that gets, that gets shot with the actors. Then it goes into post-production. Now the director is heavily involved in the post-production, but what happens is after that version that gets released into theaters, when it gets made over for things like Blu-ray and 4K and and TV, it actually has to, they go back, they take the original film and it goes back to a a digital editing editing room and someone later has to come in and adjust the film so that it looks like what it looked like in the theaters. And the directors are often not involved in that process. And that's when things can go awry. Mm. So Rob, what what did you make of this? Uh, behind the scenes look what what stood out to you well I've always been fascinated in general by the idea of movies having a unified color palette and it's not necessarily 
like one color or two colors. It's like a broad range of colors. In fact, uh, I'll have to look up the website because I don't know what it is, but there are there's a website that has just hundreds of movies like this where it's a long, almost like bar graph. And you've got, they have the whole length of the movie with like the primary color of each scene as it goes through the movie. And so you end up with this like spectrum, spectrograph basically of the movie. And it's fascinating how each movie like that is different. Now, what they did say in talking about the Matrix was that uh, this process, going back to the originals and um, remastering it how it was intended, didn't really remove green as an element. What it did was highlight it and make it more apparent when it was there. So it was still a big part of what was going on, but it didn't fade into the background like it might have a little bit when you were looking at the version that was kind of run over with a tint brush, if you want to call it that. Um, I've always I've always found just how movies and TV shows are shot and presented to be fascinating. There's, uh, I know this is a movie podcast, but talking about a TV show, there's a show on Fox currently called Prodigal Son. I don't know if anyone out there has watched that show but that show is a very dark like muted color palette it's not black and white but it almost feels like the colors are so drawn back that it's almost black and white and so you go from that to something that's made to be super vibrant and alive looking and the differences can be really fascinating um the one thing that i thought was really cool the the coolest aspect i saw in this matrix breakdown was like flesh tones and things like that were brought out more when they did this remaster people were more vibrant they feel they felt more alive on screen and it's i i think that not involving the directors in this process you know you're gonna run into issues but i also realized that it's probably almost impossible for directors to be involved in this process because they're probably off directing something. Yeah. Yeah. Because they don't just sit around with the same movie for five years. <laughs> They've got to go do other stuff. Yeah. So the impetus for this video was the fact that for the 4k edition of the matrix, which came out recently, they actually went back to the original film and did this whole process again, skipping all the stuff they did for the DVDs and the Blu-rays. So this is where like it's really highlighted. Now the, the video theorizes that what happened is when the editor was coming in to film it, he took samples from the second Matrix movie and some of the scenes in the second Matrix movie, in particular the one where they're on the they're on the top of the the tractor trailers fighting, which has a big green overtone to it. That movie did draw out the greens in, in a far uh, greater manner and then went back and used that kind of as a primer to uh, color the edition of the Matrix for Blu-ray. And it's just fascinating how something like that happens and you don't even realize it. And it becomes lodged in your memory as this is what the film is, even though that was not the version you originally saw in theaters. I think that's that whole process is fascinating how how it, it ends up being up to some person who wasn't involved in the original movie to get you to the version that you're actually seeing. 
I don't know which pill I just took for Morpheus, but I'm feeling a little weird. <laughs> yeah, we're going to link to this video because it really is a fascinating look at the behind the scenes part of the of the movie industry that oftentimes we don't get to see. And the the YouTube guy does a great job of putting some of the scenes side by side so that you can see how kind of dramatic the change is. And it's, it's really worth looking at. So it's about seven or eight minutes long. I think we'll link to it. And it's definitely worth checking out and worth your time. I think it's nine minutes and 42 seconds long because I just watched it before we recorded. Okay. So there you go. <laughs> <Under> 10 <laughs> minutes long. <laughs> but it really, it gives you a great look and great insight. So check it out. All right. Speaking of legendary series. We had started, we had to start the discussion on this as, uh, as Rob was going through these and we never really came back around to the end of it. So I thought now would be a good time to come back around. And that is our discussion of the Harry Potter series. Um, for those of you who have not been around on the podcast as long, Rob was seeing the, the movies for, I think the second time, mm -hmm. um, and was watching some of them with his family and, and getting a fresh perspective on the Harry Potter movies. Some of us have seen them way too many times. And so we thought it'd be a great opportunity to talk a little bit about the series now that Rob has wrapped up his completion and his second go, go around with the Harry Potter series. So um, Rob, do you have any initial comments before we get into specific questions? Uh, I would say just as a broad statement, I enjoy very much <laughs> the character development in this series. I think a lot of that comes down to the source material because that development happened in the source material. <laughs> now, whether or not um, J.K. Rowling has gone back and, you know, messed some of that up by muddying the waters with her own personal takes on her characters, which she's allowed to have because she made them, um, you know, it's, who's to say, but. I think as they are presented in the movies, they are fairly accurate to the books. And I think that the story in general, it's always setting itself up for Harry to have like that savior moment. Um, but I think they do a good job along the way of <laughs> presenting him as someone who has his own struggles and foibles and is, um, you know, able to mess up just like anyone else and is not a perfect person and i think i like that about the series more than anything else i don't think there's any character in the series who is perfect i think there's been a lot of debate around uh if snape was actually a good person or a bad person mm -hmm. but i in my opinion the writing for his character is some of the best writing for any character in any series because it leaves that debate open people can actually talk about it and they can argue about it and most characters you can't have that kind of discussion because the character is either fully redeemed or fully damned by the end of whatever the series is and in this movie i don't think he's either so that <laughs> so it leaves it up for debate about what he actually was and who he was and it always uh the the ending of the series and his ending always makes me emotional because i'm an emotional, you know, emo boy. So <laughs> it's just my life. I just have to live it. 
All right. Well, let's let's jump into a couple of questions because we could go on forever about this series. There's so much meat to uh, to digest there. Uh, but let's start with a basic one. What what was your what was your favorite movie? We'll do favorite and least favorite. So we'll start with favorite. What was your favorite movie of the series? Uh, my favorite is for a very selfish acting decision. And that is The Prisoner of Azkaban. And that is because that is the movie that Gary Oldman is most prominent in. And Gary Oldman is my spirit animal. And it's hilarious seeing him in this in some ways because just his characters and everything are so different that I've, I've known people this is no joke, who have seen Gary Oldman in something else, and then I've told them that he's serious Black, and they didn't believe me. <laughs> like, no, that's not possible. That's not the same person. Uh, his ability, not only, and here's the thing about Gary Oldman, it's not just, like, makeup or, or costume or anything like that. His ability to change his mannerisms and his accent and like the volume pitch speaking patterns of his voice make him a chameleon in these movies because in each different one he's a different person yeah my buddy called the ultimate chameleon he is yeah. ultimate chameleon actor and that is absolutely true so I, I really also i really just like the story in the prisoner of azkaban because there's a lot of high stakes danger and I think that might be the, the, there's bits and pieces of it, but that's where it starts to really bubble up and just goes and goes and goes until the end of the series. Mm. How about you? For me, my favorite one is The Half-Blood Prince. I really, really enjoy The Half-Blood Prince. I enjoy the, I enjoy the, the, as the, of course, as the series goes along, the tone of it gets darker and darker as, as, as Voldemort becomes more and more prominent and the stakes get higher and higher, the series gets darker and darker. And this is, this is the movie where it kind of highlights the seriousness of exactly what's happening and sets the stage for the grand ending. But I think the, um, the interplay of of Harry having to deal with his own, his own ego, um, his own, for most of, for most of the series, he's not, he's not someone who is overly impressed by his own abilities and his own goodness. In this movie, he gets caught up in it mm. and he gets caught up in, he gets caught up in his own emotion. He gets caught up in his own, um, his own thoughts on things and it, it plays out in that that's incredible scene where he goes after um <coughs> sorry um where he goes after now i'm blanking out a name see and I, there's too many movies in the series that's why you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man where he goes after his arch nemesis. Voldemort. Not Voldemort, uh, the kid. Um, this is terrible that I cannot think of it. The blonde. Head. Draco. Draco, Malfoy. Yeah, geez. Yeah, I don't talk about a movie podcast or anything. 
<laughs> no, that scene where the scene where he goes and he uses the chemistry book that he's been using all year, which is also a fantastic, which is a fantastic storyline and element. But he uses that, he attacks Draco and sees the damage he causes. And in that moment, you know, it's kind of the breaking point of him where he realizes what he's been and what he's doing and what happens if he loses, if he loses control. And I, I, I just, I love that storyline. I love that, that manner and him trying to pull the memory out of Slughorn mm. and, and the interplay of him trying to, him trying to, to get to know Slughorn and pull out this key piece of information. I, I just really, really enjoy it. So what's your least, what's your least favorite? Okay. My least favorite is the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah, it's my least favorite. I, I just find, I don't like the story as much. I don't like the story as much. The story of the basilisk and, and the snake and the petrification. I just don't engage with it nearly as much. Um, I also think this is partly in product of the fact that I think it's probably the one that's been on TV the most when I've been oh. watching. <laughs> when I was like, oh, let's turn, let's turn something on. Oh, it's the Chamber of Secrets again. Um, so when it's not your favorite movie and it gets thrown up many, many times, it seems in front of you, it just piles up a little bit of negative. I think, I just don't think there's as much development in this in this film as as there is in some of the other ones. Obviously, early in the series, they're for lack of a better term, they're more kid friendly. Um, still scary, but kid friendly, and this is in that vein. It was another one that was directed by Christopher Columbus, who did the, the first couple, but. The first one just introduces you to the characters. The second one, I just felt like it, there just wasn't enough to it. How about you? Uh, I would say the Goblet of Fire, but I would say that we're fibbling when it comes to right. which movie is the worst, because <laughs> I think they're all good. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> even, if, even if they're not your favorite, they're still above average for a lot of other movies. Yes. So, yes. And very similar to you, I just don't engage with the storyline in the Goblet of Fire as much as I do with the others. And that's not really the fault of the movie. It's just how it is. If there's eight movies, you can't love them all equally. <laughs> the one thing I think that contributes to the Goblet of Fire is the whole premise of they're there for a year. There's three events. Yeah. Like they didn't do a great a job of translating the whole backstory and the whole um setup around this tournament as they did in the books just because they did not have time but i don't think they developed that enough and so it just seemed a little hokey the way it came out in the movie well yeah the movie is basically starts with hey we're gonna have a giant tournament and all these people are coming yeah why because <laughs> yeah and it, yeah, it just doesn't, it doesn't, the whole premise doesn't make as much sense in the movie as it does in the books. Do, do you have anything else to say on that one? Not really. Okay. You pretty much nailed it. So the other, the other question we're going to ask is how well do they hold up? Because it's now been 20 years since the first movie debuted, which is really hard to believe. 
but this series is the initial movie is 20 years old. So having just watched them, what did you think? How well do the movies hold up? Of course, there's there's always story aspect versus film aspect, special effects, that sort of thing. What did you think? I think in general, um, the way they are shot holds up very well. And I think uh, I think a main reason for that may be that the direction of the series from the beginning has always kind of been about the broad view of things. There's all these shots of how big Hogwarts is. Uh, the interior shots of Hogwarts are usually in these spacious places. Um, when there are serious moments, they draw close. Uh, I think that the capability of the actors involved is a big reason why they hold up too, because I think that for preteen and teenagers, you couldn't get many better um, people to play these characters than Radcliffe, uh, Rupert, and uh, and uh, yeah, the girl, <laughs> Emma Watson. That's the one. Um, the, they were acting above their age from the beginning of the series, I think. And I think that's one of the main reasons why it holds up because it feels genuine throughout and having the same people and having them grow together makes it feel genuine too. And I think those kind of things might allow you to overlook some maybe dated visual effects and techniques, but I, I don't think they're dated to the point where they're bad or unwatchable. I think that even those hold up decently well throughout the series. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I think the older special effects hold up better than they might in other movies from a similar era is because there was always like a fantastical, magical element to them. So it was never supposed to look and feel super real, as it were. Like when you have in the first movie, when you have a frog jumping out the like a chocolate frog jumping out the window, it's supposed to be like a weird, magical thing. So the fact that the frog is is a little weird looking isn't isn't that big a deal. Or the bricks when Hagrid splits the bricks when they go into Diagon Alley the first time, um, you can tell it's it's a really CG type scene. But it's supposed to be a little magical and a little bit unusual. So I think that little bit of suspension of disbelief that that we know it's supposed to be magical gives it a little bit more credibility than, than the actual visual elements hold up. So the story is also so strong. And like you were illustrating with the characters, you are so engaged with it that you're willing to overlook some of those. I think it holds up pretty well too. Of course, since it was such a long series, the visual effects get better and bigger. Plus as, as the series gets more it gets more dramatic as it goes along. So the ones where you really were relying on a lot more special effects are all newer movies. So they were able to use more technology on that too. So I think that makes a difference. Um, strengths of the series. We've talked about this a little bit when we've hit on some of the other stuff. What, what were your thoughts on the main strengths of it? Well, I mentioned this just as we were talking, but I think the acting performances throughout the series are the main strength of the series and why they have such lasting value because pretty much without exception, every person who portrays the character in the series does incredibly well. And it's funny how a certain character will come on the screen and you'll think, oh yeah, 
I hate that person. <laughs> From the first one they say, and they just did such a good job of evoking emotion in the audience that I think the acting is the clear reason why these hold up so well. I also think the direction, especially having a split across several different directors, it always seemed to be uh, high quality. Like it doesn't seem like any of these were mailed in or um, taken for granted. And for a series like this, I think that's impressive because it seems like every person who was involved in directing these movies took them seriously, which you might not see in every series. I think one of the strengths of that series is that they were able to capture that sense of wonder that appears in the books and really, really put that on display visually in the movies. You watch the movies and, you're, and, and you feel that sense of wonder when you're staring up at the castle, when you're, you, you look up and you see the moving staircases when you you get the you get the great shots of hogwarts or just even walking through the the walls to get to station nine and three quarters the the sense of wonder that gets portrayed there it really really carries over well into the movies and i think that was the one thing that you absolutely had to have um i think another aspect of it and this goes as you we mentioned earlier to the source material the books that rowling wrote is these have a really deep philosophy some of the concepts that they that they're dealing with in these movies are really really ancient philosophically like they have some real meat on the bones philosophically i heard a long discussion on the on the game quidditch with the the um the snitch and how that element of round chaos comes straight from like alchemic texts that Carl Jung was involved with. Mm. And it's just like the depth of, of philosophy that comes in this series. And they were able to carry most of that forward into the movies, I think really, really is what makes these things so compelling you know when you've got when you've got quality source material and as you mentioned earlier writers that write well write characters that are dynamic that are not simply pure good or pure evil but have that have that struggle within them and to be able to deliver that in film was excellent all right so that wraps up our series review on Harry Potter. Hopefully that was a fun discussion. If you have other things that you absolutely loved about Harry Potter that you would like us to hear about or that you would like us to know, send us, send those comments our way. All right, so let's, let's go to our watch list here. Movies that we watched over the last week where we give you a little bit of a review. Rob, get us started. What are some movies you saw this week? So I saw two movies that were produced by and released by uh, major streaming services. Mm. Although in Netflix's case, it was a purchase of a movie that was originally going to be released in the theater. Uh, it's gonna be released under a different name, but uh, Netflix has released it under the name The Mitchells versus The Machines, which was the original producer's name for it. The producers being Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. 
who you may know from uh, the Lego Movie 2 or Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. They're very unique, creative people. And Into the Spider-Verse, if you haven't seen it, might be one of the most creative movies ever I've seen in terms of animation with just different styles being used throughout the movie and combined. And they do kind of the same sort of thing in this film, although they did not direct it. They are executive producing it. And the Mitchells versus the Machines released on Netflix centers around a family who finds the world ending with a whole bunch of robots trying to take over the world. The robots being the grown-up versions of the personal assistants on our phones. Because the tech guru who is releasing the update <laughs> it's it's a very funny movie because it's very self-aware uh as he's releasing the update he says well if you guys were ever wondering what would happen if the robots went crazy and tried to take over the world well good news i installed this kill switch file in directly into them so that will never happen and then as soon as he says that the robots go crazy and try to take over the world <laughs> um the movie is very funny, very visually appealing, and it draws in a lot of modern Instagram slash social media kind of visuals, mm-hmm. which I think kids will really like and adults can appreciate too and laugh at. Um, my favorite, I think my favorite thing in the movie is the robots have a hard time deciding what the pug dog the family has is, and it causes <laughs> them to all malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> because they're looking at it and trying to compute what it is and they're like dog pig dog pig dog pig local bread system error system error and they all explode because <laughs> they can't comprehend what the thing is that they're actually facing um so the mitchells versus the machines it's been very very widely acclaimed on like rotten tomatoes and metacritic and other places like that it's getting a lot of positive reaction so I'd recommend seeing that's on Netflix. Uh, the other movie that I watched is an Amazon Prime, Tom Clancy's Without Remorse, starring Michael B. Jordan. Um, I've been looking forward to this for a long time because I'm a big fan of Rainbow Six. And this movie is the origin story of the leader of Rainbow Six. It's not a Rainbow Six movie. Um, Michael B. Jordan signed on for a two-movie deal when this was originally being produced. But he has acknowledged and the studio has acknowledged that the second movie may or may not happen because the world kind of, you know, completely changed forever over the course of (laughs) making this movie. Um, I'm hoping it does because I'm a big fan of Rainbow Six, the series, the video games. I think there's a lot of potential there to translate those stories from the books and the video games into movies. Um, Tom Clancy, I think, is... And excellent. We talk about writers with source material. I think his source material is excellent. I think, yeah, he he has this amazing ability. Had he had this amazing ability to have a book that's like half super technical and half very emotional, and somehow combine those two things into one, because it would be very easy to only go strictly technical. Be very easy to only go emotional. But he invested the time. And learn the, the amount of time he spent learning the background of some of these systems and making sure that it was technically correct and accurate is almost insane. 
I actually did, be a on it. I did a paper on Clancy and on the hunt for Red October in high school and found out he was actually investigated by the CIA and the Def Department of Defense because of how much he knew about the subs and the submarine programs when he wrote the hunt for Red October. Yeah. He, that was the level of detail he went into. Yeah, but it shows it shows not only in the books, but it shows in the movies because the movies are the the realized visualization of the books. So uh, without remorse, I would say it was not a superb movie, but it was well acted by Michael B. Jordan. I think that I think that he should have the opportunity to follow up with this. And the next movie, if it were to come out, was tentatively titled Rainbow Six. So it was always leading towards that. There's a, a stinger at the end of the credits where he says the name Rainbow. And I got like chills because I just love Rainbow Six. And uh, that, was, that was a cool thing to see. So I hope he gets to realize that. I know he had personally high hopes that he would be able to kind of kickstart uh, Rainbow Six franchise out of this. So we'll, I guess we'll see how, how it's received. Yeah. So those were the two I watched this week. Okay. Uh, for me, the first one I watched was uh, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, and we've already talked about that, so uh, we don't need to go any more into that particular. Harry Potter thing. and the Rob's least favorite Harry Potter. <laughs> yes, I will say that it is it is known as the one with Robert Pattinson in it. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, the other movie I watched this week was Double Jeopardy, starring Ashley Judd and Tommy Lee Jones. This is another one of the 90s action movies that I've been going through. Uh, it was one I hadn't gotten to that I finally decided to come around to. And basically the story with this particular movie is Ashley Judd is, is married to this guy and they supposedly have a happy marriage. They go out to take out a yacht that they're looking at uh, for their anniversary and she wakes up and she's covered in blood and her husband is missing. And lo and behold, she gets convicted of his murder, gets her son taken away, and through a series of circumstances, finds out that he may actually be alive. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And so one of the other inmates then says to her, well, you know what this means. Do your time, get out of jail, and then you can walk right up to him and kill him because Double Jeopardy says you can't be tried twice for the same crime. So you can just walk up and murder the dude and nobody can do anything about it. So that becomes her plan. That becomes her motivational element. To doesn't, get seem, doesn't seem healthy. No, it's not really that healthy. <laughs> uh, now, it's it's an okay movie. It's not fantastic. It's an okay movie. It's 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 worth watching. Uh, but one of the things that boggles me that just drives me nuts about this is Ashley Judd's character just makes dumb, dumb decisions the entire movie. And I think part of it's bad writing. And I think part of it's like, this was the character was supposed to be acting super irrationally and emotionally, uh, but just constantly throughout the movie, she's just making things harder on herself by doing dumb things. And so that was one of the elements that I, that I think just annoyed me about the movie. So it is a decent, but not great movie, but it is, it does fit well within the, the genre of, of nineties murder mystery action type movies. 
All right. So now we will close out today with our recommendations. And I thought we would recommend a comedy. Ha! Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so Rob, let's let's give the people a comedy to watch. What what is a comedy that people should watch? I don't know if this is a comedy that people should watch, but it's a comedy I'm going to recommend that they watch. <laughs> Say that because it's not a good movie, but it's hilarious. And it would be the stupids oh, from 1996 stupid. starring Tom Arnold. Yeah. And the movie is just a never-ending stream of stupidity. And that's why it's called the stupids, because the family is literally stupid. Their last name is stupid. They live their life like they're stupid. Um, that stupid in a sense of they are ignorant of the world around them and interpret everything that is happening to them through the lens of it being about them, which is probably really relevant to modern society, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> but as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about one scene um, where Stanley Stupid, who is Tom Arnold's character, and his daughter Petunia are at a museum and they get stuck in the planetarium and the lights in the planetarium go off and they think they have died and the lights on the planetarium come on and the janitor comes in and the janitor has a name tag and it says Lloyd and they say oh wow it's so good to be here because the lights come on and all the stars are in the sky uh, what can we do for you Lord actually it's Lloyd <laughs> <laughs> and that gives you an idea of the sense of humor of this entire movie in uh, one small scene well I can tell you, my when i was growing up my dad my brother and i whenever mom was away on business or something or doing something where she was away we would occasionally do like a guy's stupid movie night and we'd go to the video store and we'd pick out stupid movies to watch and the one week i picked out the stupids and my dad couldn't even finish it <laughs> So on a stupid movie night, we could not complete the stupid. <laughs> so if that's any indication for you about the level of this movie, have at it. It does also have Christopher Lee in it as the Mr. Sender that all the mail that gets returned to Sender gets sent to. And he's this evil, <laughs> nefarious supervillain who gets everyone's mail and throws it away into the fire. So it's burned up. <laughs> And the twist about halfway through that movie is something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so The Stupid, starring Tom Arnold. Check it out. Mm -hmm. Or don't, if you value your life. So I'm going to recommend one, actually, from a very similar era. Uh, the Man Who Knew Too Little, starring Bill Murray. This is a great movie. This is, this is classic Bill Murray. And it has, it has an awesome premise. Basically, the idea is... Bill Murray is, well, he's Bill Murray. He's quirky and funky and he's visiting his brother in England and his brother's got this big business deal and he doesn't want Bill Murray around. So he, he, he books him on one of those like living theaters where it's like real streets and real people and you just kind of play act as you go along through this mystery. Well, he signs him up for it and Bill Murray accidentally gets it wrong, goes to the wrong house uh, gets a phone call uh, of a real assassin. And instead of going to the play acting house, he ends up and ends up in an actual uh, spy ring plot. 
that he is completely unaware the entire movie he thinks he's acting in a play acting theater and he's actually in the middle of an, a super serious spiring and that premise just creates so much hilarity uh so much ridiculousness it is it is a highly engaging movie i haven't actually seen that so i should probably watch it you really really should the man who knew too little it is it's classic you have to see it it used to be on Netflix, but I think it left Netflix. So I'm not sure if it's on any of the other streaming services, but the man who knew too little must see. All right. Well, that is the show. Thank you for hanging out with us on the Film for Fans podcast. Hopefully you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, share it with your friends. Tell your friends about it. Share and we would love to hear from you. So send us comments and visit filmforfans.com where we have both the podcast and lots of great articles that will help you find movies, recommend movies, and give you fun things to listen to or listen to and watch and read. So go to filmforfans.com. All right. Until next time, enjoy the movies. <laughs>